looking for what it is that you want to teach us, what it is that you desire to impress upon our hearts. And while what you've put upon my heart, Lord, tonight is uh, what some might call elementary to the faith, uh, it's good for us to be reminded of these things. Lord, we live in a world that tries to steal our minds and misdirect our hearts. And so, Father, it's our prayer that we get refocused in this place tonight. So, Lord, bless our time of study together. We pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. 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 I went with the wide double stand thing tonight. Uh, Jay asked me, why do you got the big wide pulpit thing? Because I've got a smorgasbord for us. So the the table is spread. Actually, I'm just a neat, neat freak, and I can't deal with just the little one. So, suppose you are an extra in an upcoming movie. You will probably scrutinize that one scene where hundreds of people are milling around, just waiting for that two-fifths of a second when you can see the back of your head. Just waiting for that. And then maybe your mom and your closest friend get all excited about that two-fifths of a second with you. Maybe. But no one else will even realize it's you. Even if you tell them, they won't care. Well, let's even take it a step further. What if you rent out the theater on opening night and invite all your friends and family to come see the new movie about you? People will say, you're an idiot. How could you think this movie is about you? Well, many Christians are even more delusional than the person I've been describing. So many of us think and live like the movie of life is all about us. So consider this movie of life. God creates the world. We weren't alive then. God wasn't talking to us when He proclaimed it is good about all He just made. Then the people rebel against God, who, if you haven't realized it just yet, the main character in this movie is God. And God floods the earth to rid it of the mess the people have made of it. Then several generations later, God singles out a 90-year-old man called Abraham and makes him the father of a nation. We didn't have anything to do with that. Later, along come Joseph and Moses and many other ordinary and inadequate people that the movie is also not about. God is the one who picks them and directs them and works miracles through them. In the next scene, God sends judges and prophets to His nation because the people can't seem to give Him the one thing that He asks of them, which is obedience. And then the climax. The Son of God is born among the people whom God still somehow loves. While in this world, the Son teaches His followers what true love looks like. Then the Son of God dies and is resurrected and goes back up to be with God. And even though the movie isn't quite finished yet, we know what the last scene holds. It's the scene in the throne room of God. Here every being worships God who sits on the throne, for He alone is worthy to be praised. So from start to finish, this movie is obviously about God. He's the main character. How is it possible that we live as though It's about us. Our scenes in the movie, our brief lives, fall somewhere between the time Jesus ascends into heaven, the book of Acts, and when we will all worship God on His throne in heaven, the book of Revelation. We have only our two-fifths of a second scene to live. 
Doesn't it only make sense to have our two-fifths of a second focused on God? 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That is what each of our two-fifths of a second should be about. So what does that mean for us? Well, frankly, we need to get over ourselves. (laughs) That might sound harsh, but that's seriously what it means. So then, it's about God. It's about focus. What is your, what is my focus? If we were to look through a pair of binoculars, we have to make adjustments to those binoculars to bring what we are looking at into focus, right? We adjust, we turn, whatever we need to do to focus in on that object we're looking at. My prayer tonight is that this study will accomplish just that. It will help us to refocus, that we will switch from what so many of us struggle with, which is a self-focus, to a God-focus. Several years ago, my daughter Lacey, who many of you know, when she was in high school, she played uh, basketball over at Dayspring Christian. And uh, I had the opportunity to help coach some. But most of the time when she was playing, I was up in the stands like any other parent. Although, I don't want to say like any other parent because uh, I'm not one of those yellers and screamers at basketball games. Um, That's just not who I am. That's not the way I approach things. But I did have a few, a set of hand signals that I would give my daughter. If she glanced up at me in the crowd, I could use one of these signals to to help her to refocus. And one of those was, you know, this one, right? (laughs) Focus. Because I don't know if you guys noticed, but with, especially with girls basketball, which was the exposure I had when she was growing up, they aren't always that focused. Um, You know, there's times when I thought, you know, she's on the floor, she's in the game, but in her mind she's thinking, boy, I sure like that girl's haircut. Or look at those shoes, those shoestrings. Those shoestrings are just so, so cool, you know. <laughs> refocus. Time to refocus, Lace. So there was a list I found on the internet. I don't know who came up with this list, but I thought it was pretty accurate. That's the top ten distractions that might keep us from focusing on God. Number one, money. Would we all agree that's a huge distraction sometimes for us? Number two is the media. Just things that's going on in the news. Politics, certainly. Number three was church and religion. I'll just let you chew on that one. Uh, Number four was relationships. Number five was routine. Being so caught up in our routine that we don't have time to focus on God. Do you know anybody like that? Our work. Our work could get in the way, couldn't it? Our hobbies, except for golf. Uh, that, that one's because, well, no, let me explain, because there's a lot of humility in golf. I know, okay? Our hobbies, of course, our desires. Now, this one kind of set me back. Our pastor. Pastor is a distraction? Well, it can be. If you're focusing too much on the pastor and not enough on the Lord, then you're lifting man up higher than he should be, right? So pastors can be a distraction. I pray that I'm not that tonight, actually. Uh, 
And then the number 10, but I think it's number one, ourselves. We can be our own worst enemy in distracting, being distracted from God, right? So turn, if you will, tonight to two places in your Bible. Start off with Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Mark chapter 12. And just stick your finger in both those places. Deuteronomy 6, Mark chapter 12, and we'll actually start off with Mark chapter 12. Now at first glance, as we go through Mark chapter 12, starting with verse 28, it might not be entirely apparent why I'm parked on us focusing on God and getting our focus back in the right place, but uh, hopefully you'll see it as we go through it. So Mark chapter 12, verse 28, Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth, for there is one God, and there is no other but He. And to love Him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now when Jesus saw that He answered wisely, He said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared question him. So, two commands. You see the two commands there? They're simple, right? Love God and love others. The only time self is even mentioned in this passage is love your neighbor as yourself. So as much as we love ourselves, we need to love our neighbor equally as much, if not more, right? We're going to talk about that more on Sunday. Uh, I've got the opportunity to Jeff's in Yellowstone, uh, enjoying himself for some rest, and uh, him and Sue and David. So pray for them. Pray that the Lord keeps them safe and they have some uh, time for rest and renewing up there. So we're going to talk about that part of this passage more on Sunday. But given the passage of Scripture we're looking at tonight, I'm asking, love God, Why? Why are we to love God? And love God, how? How are we to love God? So tonight, Sunday morning, we're going to look at these two commandments, these greatest commandments, as Jesus uh, quoted. Hopefully, this will give us a focus, first of all, of why we are to love God and also how we are to love God. So love God, why? Looking at verse 28 again in Mark chapter 12, it says, Then one of the scribes came. One of the scribes, in Mark chapter 12, we'll notice uh, in the verses before this uh, passage, there are a number of prominent Jewish religious and political groups that have come to, to question Jesus. 
In Mark 12, 13 through 17, uh, we see what the Herodians' focus is. The Herodians now are a Jewish, Jewish political party of King Herod's supporters. Uh, many times they tried to trap Jesus with questions, and they also plotted to kill him. They saw Jesus as one who was a threat to their political future. And they were afraid of Jesus causing political instability. In verses 18 through 27, we see the Sadducees' focus. They were a wealthy, upper-class Jewish priestly party. They rejected the authority of the Bible beyond the five books of Moses. They profited greatly from the business end in the temple. And they, along with the Pharisees, were the two major parties in the Jewish Supreme Court. And now here, in verses 28 through 34, we see the Pharisees' focus. They were a strict religious group of the Jews. They advocated obedience to the Jewish laws and traditions. They were very influential in the synagogues, and many of the scribes were also Pharisees. So the man asking this question was one of the scribes, and this scribe was also a Pharisee and a lawyer, and we know that from the account in Matthew 22 of this same passage. Scribes were professional interpreters of the law. They emphasized traditions, and they denied Jesus' authority to reinterpret the law. So we, here we have a lawyer coming to question Jesus on the law. It's a setup, isn't it? We can see that happening. And of course, Jesus' answer is, is just uh, wonderful here. So this scribe came, and having heard them reasoning together and perceiving that he had answered them well, who? Well, the guys that were asking him the questions before, in this case, the Herodians and the Sadducees. So you know, if you flip back to verse 13 in this same chapter, <clears throat> some of the Pharisees and the Herodians came to him to catch him in his words. And they asked him, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? What did Jesus do? He asked for a coin, and he said, whose image and whose inscription is on this? And they said, Caesar's. And Jesus gave his answer, then render unto Caesar what's Caesar's, and render unto God what's God's. There couldn't have been a better answer. They had nowhere to go with it. He shut them down. So then the Sadducees step in, and they go through this whole thing about, okay, suppose there's <clears throat> seven brothers. The first one marries, and then he dies. And then by Jewish law, then the second one has to marry him, and then he dies. The third one marries, and he dies. You know, I would start to wonder about this woman a little bit myself. Uh, <laughs> does the term black widow come to mind? I don't know. But anyway, the seventh one dies. And so now these Sadducees, they're asking him, so then, therefore, if all seven had her in a, as a wife, whose wife will she be, you know, in the resurrection? Jesus says, Are you not therefore mistaken, because you do not know the Scriptures, nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. And then in verse 27, He says, He's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You therefore are greatly mistaken. So you wives out there that are looking forward to, ah, I get to be with my husband in heaven. Or you're going, ah, <laughs> I don't have to be with my husband in heaven. What, whatever it is, God's got it all figured out, okay? And you're going to be happy. You're going to be joyous either way. So, whether by the prompting of his peers or by his own conviction, 
this scribe, this Pharisee, this lawyer, perceiving that Jesus had previously answered them well, asked his question. Which is the first commandment of all? What is the greatest commandment in the law? So he's asking of all the commandments, all of God's commandments, which is the number one priority, which is the most important? Well, you see, at this time, the Jews had 613 commandments from the Old Testament law. 365 of these were don't do or negative commandments, and 248 of them were positive or do commandments. 613 commandments. It's interesting, if you read in Psalm 15, verses 1 through 5, David reduces this number, it appears, to 11. And in Micah, chapter 6, verse 8, it appears as though it's reduced to 3. Now here, in our text, in verses 30 and 31, Jesus reduces it to 2. Love God and love others. So which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answers this question by quoting what in Jewish tradition is called the Shema. So flip over, if you've got your finger there still, to Deuteronomy chapter 6. The great Shema of the Jewish faith. Deuteronomy chapter 6. It'll be familiar because Jesus just quoted this in the passage that we're looking at. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That's the beginning of, the first part of, the Shema in the Jewish faith. And Jesus then combines it with Leviticus 19.18, and He said, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus then says, There is no other commandment greater than these. Love God and love others. The Shema starts off with, hear, O Israel. Shema in Hebrews means, hear. Hear, O Israel. Hear, O my people. Listen up. The first part of the Shema is what in Jewish tradition is required. Young men are, are raised up uh, in this, that they are to quote this every morning and every evening. Back to verse 4. Here's the first part of the great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Combined with verses 6 through 9. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now we read that, and we think, okay, it's Old Testament, it's law, here's what's going on. But there's some very valuable things for us in there, isn't there? As we live as, as parents in our homes, to teach these things to our children diligently, talk of them when we're sitting in our homes, when we're walking along the roadside, when we lie down, when we rise up. Simply put, God's giving them the command to love Him with everything they are, to focus upon Him every day throughout their whole day in everything they do. Sounds like a good thing to do, right? We could all agree with that. 
I believe that distractions that we talked about before could be minimized or even eliminated if we keep a healthy focus on God all day long. When we rise up through the whole day, when we lie down. They were to obey God in everything that He commanded them all day, every day. Starting with the first ten, the Ten Commandments given previously in Deuteronomy 5, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself a carved image. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet. The first four of those are man's relationship to God. The next six are man's relationship to man. So most of these top ten, if you will, we don't necessarily have a problem keeping those, do we? Do we? (laughs) Because that bottom one, you shall not covet. Just on my way over here tonight, I'm waiting at the stop sign to turn left to come to the church. This brand new Camaro, red, white stripes. I could see myself in that, you know? (laughs) I could look good in that. I was coveting, right? We have to be very careful. We do that on a regular basis and don't think a thing about it. But in God's law, it says, do not covet. Bearing false witness against your neighbor. Has anybody here ever lied? You just did. Everybody, (laughs) raise your hands. (laughs) But anyway, we try to do the best we can with the top ten, but... Out of the other 603, there are also many there that I don't have a problem with. Deuteronomy 14, 19. Do not eat creeping things that fly. So I can't eat roaches, beetles, or crickets. I'm walking in victory on that one, okay? I don't eat the creepy crawling things. That makes me right with God, right? No. But there's 612 more. Quite honestly, we all know that we have a problem with a number of them, don't we? We all struggle with something or more than something on that list. We can't keep all of these. No one can. Romans 3.10 says, None is righteous, no, not one. So God gave the Hebrews the law. And with that law, there was an understanding in His own heart that no one could keep that law. So then why the law from God if He knew nobody could keep the law? I mean, it's kind of rude on his behalf, you know, if you will, to say, hey, you want to get into the kingdom on your own? Well, here's 613 laws. If you keep them all, you can get there on your own. But we know we can't. It's a really good question. It's it's just a good question. And those of us that that study God's Word, we know the answer to that. But again, like I said, we need to be reminded of these things. Let's take a look at this again. Turn with me, if you will, to Galatians chapter 3. Keep your finger on Luke chapter, or Mark chapter 12. <laughs> Almost messed with you there. Mark chapter 12, keep your place and go to Galatians chapter 3. Here I think we have a good answer to that question. I don't want to answer that question on my, my own, in my own words. Let's use God's word to tell us the answer to that question. 
Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed, capitalized seed, should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So then what was, is the logic or the rationale of the law? It's twofold, as this passage tells us. Because of transgressions, to point out what is wrong and what is unholy, and to be a tutor, to use the law to show us what you have to do to keep the law. That word tutor in the King James Version is translated schoolmaster. It's a teacher, someone teaching us these things. The law is teaching us to show us what we have to do to keep that law, to be righteous through the law. But I can't, and you can't. We can't gain access to the kingdom through the law. There was, only, there was one and only one who could keep the law perfectly, Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Do not think that I came to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus came, fulfilled all the law to meet the righteous requirement of God, to be the sinless sacrifice for once and for all. Amen? Why did God do this? Why did He give His own Son as a sacrifice for the likes of us? Jeremiah 31.3 even tells us, God speaking, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. 1 John 3.1 Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. So back to our original text. Back in Mark chapter 12, verse 28. Jesus says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, I am by no means a student of Hebrew and Greek. Uh, I kind of rely on those men that are smarter than me, which they're numerous. <laughs> more than stars in the sky. There are so many men that are more intelligent than I am that have studied the Hebrew and the Greek to a point where I trust what it is they have to say. So, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Why is that such an important statement? Well, the Hebrew word translated one is akkad. Did you like that? It sounded Hebrew, didn't it? I don't know if that's how you say it, but, you know, that's as close as I can. This refers to a compound unity. Akkad is used in Genesis 2.24 with regard to Adam and Eve, as well as in Exodus 26 to describe the curtains and coverings of the tabernacle. Two, right? Akkad. The Hebrew word translated God is Elohim. 
it's also what's called a compound unity. L, E-L, is singular. L-O, <laughs> I say E-L-O, and then, of course, being a child of the 60s and 70s, you know, <laughs> Elo is used for two, but Elohim refers to three or more. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, Elohim is one compound unity. So if we listen very careful to the Shema, we see and we hear the Trinity. That's important. It's very important. That the God that we know in the New Testament that we see as the Trinity is also there in the Old Testament, right? Very important for us to know this. That confirms New Testament scriptures like Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Revelation 1, 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. So when 1 John 4, 8 says, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love, we can rest in the fact that He never changes. So He has always loved us with His perfect love, agape love. Even when He was laying down the law in Deuteronomy 6, He was loving us with His perfect love. So, love God. Why? Why love God? Well, the one verse that should come, first come to mind is... 1 John 4, 19. We love Him because He first loved us. But we are also commanded to love God by Jesus in this text. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now some of you may have noticed that in the Shema, mind is not there. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. We'll get to that on Sunday. See, it's, it's one of those teasers. It's a carrot. You've got to come back. I mean, and, and I, I just see you. You're sitting on the yacht. I can't wait till Sunday. I just know that's where you are. I just can't wait. So if God is the standard for what true love is, and His command is to love Him with all that we are, heart, soul, mind, and strength, then we need to take a closer look at what the love of God looks like in order for us to know how to love God better ourselves. And I think that that's something we can all improve on. How many of us here would be so bold as to say, well, nobody's going to raise their hand now, but say, I've got the whole love thing down. I'm just a love machine. You know that? I'm sorry. Eight-track flashback. I'm sorry. So let's look at God's love defined. Perfect love, agape love, is selfless, it's sacrificial, it's unconditional love. Selfless, sacrificial, unconditional love. C.S. Lewis, the author, said, On the whole, God's love for us is a much safer subject to think about than our love for Him. The love chapter in the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, I'll read it for you. It's a description of God's love. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Love never fails. We could very easily, if you've probably heard before, substitute the word love with God. God suffers long. God is kind. God is not... All those things are attributes of God, right? 
What if we tried to put our own name in there? It's a very sobering thought, isn't it? If you just look at that list and you think, Jim suffers long. Man, I already lost, you know, right, right, right out of the gate. But there's another definition of God's love in Galatians chapter 5. that We can take a look at that. It's talking about the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All characteristics, all attributes of God. Let's expound on those a little bit, those characteristics. Joy, we could call love strength. Peace, we could call love security. Long-suffering, one of those words that is spelled kind of like it sounds, long-suffering, you know, it just kind of drags out, right? That's love's endurance. Kindness, love's conduct. Goodness, love's character. Faithfulness, love's confidence. Gentleness, love's humility. And self-control, love's victory. Of all the verses in the Bible that confirm the love that God has for us, probably one of the most well-known, most often quoted verses is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's repeat that together. Repeat after me. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. See, this whole thing of not keeping God's command was just proven right there. Because I said, repeat after me, and you guys walked all over me, okay? So, just a point to to make, okay? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So given the definition of agape, this verse shows us the selfless, sacrificial, unconditional love that God has towards us. Now, I want to take a closer look at this verse and kind of break it apart. And this is going to sound a little strange, but I want to look at it backwards. Because what is the end result of what is being said? Based on this verse, if the goal is to have or to obtain everlasting life, then what are the steps to get there? What do we learn about God and His love in this offering of everlasting or eternal life? If you're a note taker, here are four things for your consideration that you can jot down. Number one, God's motivation. God's motivation. For God so loved the world. The definition of motivation is the reason or reasons one has for acting or behaving in a particular way. The general desire or willingness of someone to do something. God's motivation was because He loved us with His perfect agape love. He offers us everlasting life because He loves us. For God so loved the world. Now who does He offer it to? The world. All. Everyone. I don't know what all is in the Greek, but it's probably all, okay? I think we can trust in that. God is the initiator of the love. We didn't love Him first, did we? He loved us first. God's the initiator. For God so loved the world. God's love cannot be earned or deserved. God's love can only be received. And that's it. By giving us His law first, 
as we've seen, as we looked at, and showing us we can't keep it, we see our need for a Savior, which God provides out of His love for us. Number two, God's propitiation. I had to practice that word, actually. <laughs> it's a tough word to say, especially quickly, but God's propitiation. That He gave His only begotten Son. So we have God's motivation for God so loved the world. Now we have God's propitiation that He gave His only begotten Son. Definition of propitiation, that word. <laughs> An atoning sacrifice, a God-approved sacrifice, a substitutionary sacrifice, propitiation. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. We couldn't achieve God's righteous standard, His law, on our own, so because of His love, He provided an atoning, perfect sacrifice for us. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrated His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 2, 2. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. We got God's motivation, which was love. We got God's propitiation, is that He gave His Son as a sacrifice for us. Next, number three, is God's salvation. God's salvation. That whoever believes in Him should not perish. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish. Salvation, definition. Preservation or deliverance from destruction, difficulty, or evil. Deliverance from the power or penalty of sin. Redemption. Believing in Him and what He has done for us. That whoever believes in Him should not perish. Believing in Him. Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with one heart one believes, or for with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth, confession is <clears throat> made unto salvation. Excuse me. <clears throat> also in Romans chapter 10, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's a promise there, isn't it? There's whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in your heart, God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. The gospel message is really very, very simple. We were sinners because we couldn't keep God's law. We needed someone to save us from our sinful state. God sent the perfect sacrifice to die for our sin. We confess our sinful state and accept the Savior's sacrifice. And we are granted by this verse, what? Everlasting life. By God's love through Jesus Christ. John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. And John 3.17, we focus a lot on John 3.16. 3.17 gets missed sometimes. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, 
but that the world through him might be saved. We can only have fellowship with God by the necessity of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Love God, why? One of my favorite authors is a pastor uh, by the name of John Piper. And in his book, God is the Gospel, uh, John writes, A critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. Now think about this. Really think about this. Let it sink into your heart. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ was not there? So how many of us would read those words and hear those words going, yeah, that's a description of heaven, that's what I like to hear. Those are all those things that I enjoy and look forward to. If you are as deeply in love with God as you should be, as we should be, we know we could never be satisfied in heaven without Christ. The fact is, without Christ, it, it just wouldn't even be heaven. So, I challenge all of us tonight, will the first thought we have when we enter into heaven, where's Jesus? I want to see Jesus. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life, eternal life. Number four, God's justification. God's motivation, God's propitiation, God's salvation, and God's justification. All four of these wrapped up in this one verse that we're all so familiar with. Justification, definition, the act, process, or state of being justified. Again, I love Webster's, right? It's like, really? You can't come up with a definition that doesn't actually use the word? But it's correct. It's right on. The act, process, or state of being justified, in this case, by God. You've probably heard before, justified. Just as if I'd never sinned. Justified. 1 John 3, 11 through 13 says, And this is the testimony, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, important right here, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know. 1 John 2.25 says, And this is the promise that He has promised us, eternal life. Not only is this love offered freely, but to those who believe it is everlasting love. Romans 8.35, Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's an everlasting love, everlasting life. Now, number five, God's love is unconditional. 
There is a lot of bad teaching out there that says otherwise. That God's love is conditional. It's based on something we do. Well, everything we've looked at here refutes that, does it not? Who was the initiator of the love? God. Who loved first? God. God is the one that did it. God is the one that laid down the law to show us we couldn't keep it so that we'd have need of a Savior. That He could send His Son to die on the cross for us, each and every one of us. So God started out loving us. Unconditional love means there is no condition, stipulation, or requirement that we must meet in order for God to love us. God's the initiator. Also in this verse, key point, God's love is not based on whoever believes. Everlasting life is based on whoever believes. God loves, God's love is already there. Whether we believe it or not, it's there. It's unconditional. While we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Gang, we weren't really all that great of a catch, were we? <laughs> Did God look down and go, Yeah, that Jim. Uh-huh. I think he's got potential. Yeah, I think he did do that, as he saw that in all, every one of us. But we were yet sinners, and he still loved us, right? So, love God, why? Well, I'd hope by now that's pretty obvious. Again, a lot of what we've talked about is elementary to the Christian faith. It's good for us to be reminded of these things. Because of God's amazing love for us, we should be what? Focused on God. As we looked in Deuteronomy, that was a picture of a person or a family unit focused on God from the beginning of their day, all through their day, to the end of their day. Can we be focused on God the way that we should be and be selfish? Not really. <laughs> no. If we are, we're not focused on God. We're focused on ourselves, right? So focus on God is a very healthy thing for us in our Christian walk. It's essential in our Christian walk. How many of you have ever woke up in the morning, went to work, and had a bad day? <laughs> Nobody? <laughs> Greg has. <laughs> Tell it, Brother Greg. I, I know. <laughs> we've all had bad days. Even when we've gotten up early in the morning and spent time with the Lord, we can still have a bad day, but we can take God with us through that bad day, right? Same thing if we have a good day. Take Him with us through that good day. Either way, we should be praising God for that day. But imagine, if you will, if you look back at Deuteronomy chapter, chapter 6, it talks about when you rise up. Uh, Brian and I, we were doing our discipleship one day, and we come up with this thing that I thought was just great. I think Brian actually did, but I'm going to take credit too, because I was there. It was just the two of us, and there's nobody else to refute it, okay, except Brian. But getting up in the morning and having a briefing, if you will, with God going throughout our whole day knowing that God has set the pace for what our day is going to be. And then at the end of our day, looking back, doing a debriefing, right? Having a briefing in the morning and a debriefing in the evening. 
and that debriefing just celebrating everything that God did through our day. When we were focused on Him and when we were not focused on Him. Because it's going to happen, isn't it? But yet we can look back and go, you know what? I struggled a little bit there. I had a tough time right there in that one thing. If I had turned to God, I think it would have gone differently. Not that the problem still wouldn't have been there, but the problem solver would have been there with us. So, focus on God. Don't be distracted because of God's amazing love for us. Now, Sunday, we're going to take a twist on that and we're going to look at love God how? Because in all that we just talked about, we didn't spend a lot of time on love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And we know that that's the makeup of everything that we are, right? But what does it mean to love God with all your heart? What does it mean to love God with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength? Actually, the last one seems to be the easiest one in a lot of ways because we just think, what's works, right? That's what we think about, our strength, that, that we're going to love Him with all our strength and the things that we do. Not necessarily. So we're going to look at love God how on Sunday. What's the first step in how? Responding to God's love for us. We know that He loves us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this evening. We thank You, Lord, that as we've gone through portions of Your Word, we've looked at what Your law has to say. We've looked at what grace has to say. And Lord how you've made that available to us. Lord, typically we know that at the end of our services we share the gospel message. We give an open invitation to maybe those that are here that don't have relationship with you. We offer that. We offer opportunity to respond to that. Lord, this entire message was the gospel. I pray, Father, that it was, that it came across with clarity. That, Lord, all of the ears that were here tonight heard it with clarity. That, Lord, being reminded of these things touched our hearts. Lord, it made us thankful. Lord, that we could just do nothing more than to give you praise for the wonderful gospel message that you've given us. But Lord, I know that I wouldn't be obedient to you if I didn't ask that if there's any here tonight that haven't responded to your love yet, that Lord, you're the initiator of that love. You're reaching out to them by the power of your Holy Spirit. Even now, you would be wooing them. The Holy Spirit saying, no, come. Come, come to Jesus Christ. Know what it is to have the peace of everlasting life in Jesus Christ because it's offered to you freely. There's not a thing you can do to earn it. But freely responding, you can receive it. So I pray if there's anyone here this evening that desire to respond to Christ for the first time
We're rejoicing with you. And if you would, just raise your hand right now.